Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello. And welcome to What to Say When Things Get Tough, a podcast dedicated to helping you communicate more effectively in difficult situations, both personal and professional. I'm your host, Leonard S. Greenberger. Our guest today is Simon Rin, an Australian therapist who specializes in helping men work through mental health challenges. Simon is also the host of a podcast called Mindful Men. We talk about how Simon decided to help others after struggling with his own issues and discuss how to approach a conversation with someone who you fear may be anxious, depressed, or even suicidal. You can learn more about Simon and his work on his website at www.mindful-men.com.au. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I thought I would start by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you came to focus on the notion of mindful men. It's a 30-year mental health journey that I've I've got starting from when I was eight years old, developing obsessive compulsive disorder, right up to now. Like I'm I'm 39 now, but mindful men as a as a both a social media presence but also a business now came about in I think it was 2020 I'd experienced burnout um, so I was in the midst of studying a master's degree in social work I was working a full-time job nine to five um, in my public service career which I'd had for 15 years uh, we had two kids under three I think it was at the time um, plus like you know the mental health stuff that I was dealing have been dealing with for the better part of my life and and then COVID hit as well. And so what we found ourselves is Australia had lockdowns. Um, we were, I think, in the midst of our second lockdown at the time. So we couldn't leave the house or we could only go within five kilometres of our house to get groceries and exercise at the park and so forth. And I basically just hit a brick wall, both physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and the process of going through therapy of this, I realized I'd been I'd been burning candles at both ends for a very long time, becoming increasingly cynical at work, felt deflated all the time, a lot of foggy brain. And I just thought this was my depression coming back because it comes up in, in, in waves. But when I got, went to the doctor, and I'm lucky that I went to this particular doctor because he'd experienced burnout. So when I was explaining the symptoms that I was having, he's like, this is not your depression, Simon, which is probably having an impact, but this is what's called burnout. And so that set me off on a, on a little bit of a recovery journey at first. And through that, I started to find mindfulness. I was introduced to mindfulness through my mental health social worker. But then it kind of went back on the back burner and, and I got back to work. And I used going back to work as, as part of that recovery process as 
essentially taking my own mental health mask off. I'd got to a point where I'd, I'd been hiding it for a long time, for a very long time, in fact, and I just got so tired of doing that. And so when I went back to work, I, I felt the need to share my burnout story because I knew burnout was a real issue in my workplace, not only where I worked here in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, but across Australia as a national organisation. And in doing that, I also shared that I lived with OCD, depression and anxiety. And it just felt so good to to share that. And people would come up to me afterwards, say, Simon, I never knew any of this about you. You obviously wore the mask very well. And I had been wearing that mask for a long time. And then from there, it started an Instagram page. And, and I wanted to share that story further and just kind of promote to guys that you can talk about your mental health and, and what's going on in inside. And then, yeah, from there, it developed into a podcast. I've got the Mind for Men podcast now, which has been going for just over a year. And then now that I've finished my Masters of Social Work, I've actually taken the mindfulness approaches that I've been learning and, and introduced to in my own therapy and now applying them in a dedicated men's therapist business or men's therapy business, should I say, that's dedicated to men because I feel like I just want to help other guys who are just like me who had bottled it up for so long, had never had anyone to talk to about it, had tried to fix it ourselves with things like alcohol, drugs, whatever whatever their poison was. I just wanted to give them a space where they could just talk openly, honestly, vulnerably, and not feel ridiculed in doing so because they were a man. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's Mindful Men came from burnout, but it, it probably encapsulates 30 plus years of lived experience for me, plus my social work degree. And, and yeah, it's it's been a it's been a wonderful journey. I'm I'm so glad I did it back in starting back in 2020 with my burnout story. I want to congratulate you for sharing your story the way you have. I think that that is something that needs to happen more and more so that we can continue to break down the stigma around mental health issues and substance abuse issues. You know, I myself have struggled with mental health and substance abuse and I think I've been lucky in that it has it, it sort of came to a head and I wound up in a psychiatric ward uh, for a brief stay following followed by rehab and ongoing care. And I think because of just the timing that it happened to me, I'm a little better able to share that not only with you know family and friends, but even with colleagues, just because there has been some lifting of the stigma associated with it. I, I just think it's important for, for people like you and me, uh, and others to be more open uh, about mm. their struggles. I don't know if you're aware of, of our senator here, our newly elected senator, John Fetterman from Pennsylvania. He had a stroke uh, during the campaign back in May, and then just in the last few weeks announced that he was checking himself into the hospital to uh, address depression that he mm. suffered from, I think, his whole life, but has become more acute as a result of the stroke. And you know, that what a hard thing to do. And I, I applaud him for doing it as well. So very much appreciate you're your taking this on in, in looking through your website and, and listening to some of the podcast. I know the description that you give is, you know, I want to get men talking. And I think you've touched on it a little bit already, but I wanted to ask you to expand on that a little bit and why you think that's important. 
So from from age eight, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, but until it wasn't diagnosed until twenty eight years old. So it was twenty years undiagnosed, and and during that period, it was also depression came in in my teens, stayed with me. Anxiety came along for the ride as well, and and I just never had a person to talk to about this type of stuff. So I grew up in a in the eighties and nineties in a working class area where there's lots of pockets of welfare, lower socioeconomic housing and like social housing and so forth. And in that kind of environment, it you couldn't talk about things. It was the whole men can't talk, um, boys can't talk. Um, if you fall down, hurt yourself, suck it up, you know, push on. Because if you do do that type of stuff, you're labelled as either, um, you know, a girl or you're labelled as gay. And this was in the eighties and nineties, and and. And but even having discussions with other blokes and people younger than me as well, it's still happening in the noughties. And so for for that 20 odd years of of being undiagnosed, I just tried to outthink it myself. Uh, and I kept going in this negative thought spiral that I just couldn't get out of. It was a loop that just played on repeat. And then when I eventually got the the courage to go and see a doctor it was actually my wife my now wife who encouraged me to do that she said Simon the way you're showing up in the world is isn't I know you're better than this basically it's not how you want to live you're drinking way too much and I was using alcohol to kind of numb everything but also to be social at the same time which is you know a very tricky thing to do and I I was at that point kind of like that self-reflection moment where I'm like yeah, like I've been deflecting on this. I've been trying to sort it out and fix myself. It's just not working. I need external help. And so off I went to the doctor and got my, you know, a mental health treatment plan, which gives us subsidized access to to mental health support through a psychologist, counselor, social worker, and started my recovery journey. And it's been, that's been 11 years this year since I've been doing that. And I just found that, thank you. And, and I just found that the more I talk about it, the easier it actually gets because it is quite a hard thing to talk about. I remember going to that GP the first time. I nearly choked on the words, I think I have a mental health issue as they came out. And I still remember that to this day. And, you know, it took a lot of trial and error with different psychologists, counselors to find a good fit. And over the years, I've dropped in and out of therapy. Like it's been something, it hasn't been a constant 11-year therapy process, but I've, you know, I go for a little while, then I think I'm okay, I come out. Or I go for a little while, don't gel with the, the practitioner, and I drop out. And then eventually I found the kind of therapist that I actually really click with. And, and they happen to all really engage with mindfulness. And so I just really are drawn to that kind of therapy because it doesn't feel like homework. It actually feels like self-development and growth. And so just through my own story, I'm like, well, yeah, men need to start talking. And then as I, as I started studying my social work degree, started looking at the broader impacts of mental health and, and particularly on men. And, and if you're looking at statistics from Australia, and I think it's very similar in the US and, and even maybe in the UK as well, is that 75% of suicide deaths are male. And even in the domestic violence data as well, so 75% of, perp- of victims of domestic violence in Australia report that the perpetrator is a male as well. And then we look at, you know, prison populations, there's more men in prison as well. There's more men, you know, homeless. There's there's just a whole swathe of data that shows that men really struggle in this area. And I think, you know, if, if, if men are able to talk about mental health, they're probably less likely to to die by suicide they might be less likely to perpetrate family domestic violence 
because they have healthier means of channeling things like aggression and depression, sadness, uh, you know, anger, all these like negative emotions going inside their body. And they've got actually a more of a positive outlet through therapy um, to do so. And so when I started seeing the world through that kind of lens, I'm like, okay, so I've got my own personal journey and I had things like suicidal ideation along my journey as well and, so, and you know, drinking too much. But then you've got also this societal issue of, yeah, like guys are in prison, guys are dying and and why is this the case? Where are the supports for them? And, and, and so then I started looking at in my own journey, like men's mental health therapists and therapists and we're very few in, in, in the field. There's a lot more females who practice in this area. There are a lot more um, therapy practices that are focused on females, like mums, you know, victims of family domestic violence for children, but not so much for men, not dedicated to men and, and helping and wanting men to grow and, and be the best versions of themselves. And so that's where I'm thinking, okay, we've got a bit of an issue here. We actually need to start supporting men to open up by having men open up as well. And so that's what I've been doing both in the social media space and now in the therapy clinic. And, you know, when I started my small business, I'm thinking, okay, who am I going to support? Yes, I want to support men. But then I was also thinking, am I cutting out 50% of my potential client base because I need to make money, uh, you know, as, as a business owner? But I'm like, no, I want to focus on men. This is my passion. This is what I'm driving to do. And then through my networking, I'm starting to find a few other guys very similar who are doing counseling or psychology. And in talking to them, there's a lot of trauma backgrounds as well for these guys who are practicing therapists. There's child abuse and bouts of homelessness and, and substance abuse. And the common themes here is not being able to talk about mental health as our kids. It's the common theme everywhere. Even on the podcast that I do in discussions with guys across the world, we talk about their mental health journey and their childhood. And it's often the case that I think there's only been one person I've interviewed in the last 12 months who said I had someone who I could talk to men about mental health. And that was actually a male. They actually had a positive male role model in their life. I think it was their father, but the vast majority didn't have that. And so getting men talking is is, is the whole aim is to, to support, you know, lowering those statistics that I mentioned earlier, but also helping, you know, guys just to start talking and, and, and maybe do some positive growth in, in their lives so that they can, I guess, also role model for future generations. So I'm a dad now, so I'm often thinking about trying to role model that positive mental health message to my son who's six now. I want him to feel like he can always come to me and talk to me or talk to someone. It doesn't have to be me if he doesn't want to talk to me, but at least he can see me doing it and he sees me get emotional and I don't hide that away from him. And I talk about mindful men to him and as long as I'm, I guess, role modeling that, then I'm hopeful that in the future, he's got someone he can talk to as well. I don't want to get on my soapbox, but I am a big believer that the distinction we draw between physical health and mental health is actually a barrier to a lot of people admitting that they need some help and going to look for it. And I often use the analogy, if I break my arm or I come down with COVID, it's perfectly acceptable by everyone in society that I seek out help. I put a cast on the arm. I start taking perhaps the, the drugs, or if I'm bad enough, I'm admitted to the hospital. And everybody you know, supports that, encourages that, helps you to, to heal. But for some reason, when your mind breaks, for whatever reason, yeah, as you say, that's, that's so much harder for people to talk about, and particularly men. I think 
it is viewed as a weakness to admit that you need mm-hmm. that kind of, of mental help. And it took me a long time to come to the conclusion or the realization, maybe is a better word, that it's a strength to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if we can, you know, you're doing it one person at a time, you know, I'm interviewing you and trying to spread the word myself, but if we can just change the the framework so that everybody's more comfortable saying, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm having trouble here and I need to talk to somebody about it, I think would just do wonders. I'm glad that you brought up like the invisibility nature of mental health. And, and for the last five or odd years, I've worked in the disability spec in the, the disability sector. So, and it's really interesting there because you like when someone comes in, came into the office when I in my old job as a public servant, and you had a physical disability, you're like, oh yeah, you, you know, you're in a wheelchair, you, you maybe, or maybe you've got a prosthetic leg or something like that. I can see this. I can see that you have a disability. But for those per- people that had a psychosocial disability, something that's internalized, you know, we're talking about schizophrenia, even an intellectual disability as well, or, you know, severe depression, bipolar, anxiety, like even obsessive compulsive disorder for some people, like these are all invisible things. You can't see them unless someone's talking about them. But even though that, even when they're talking about them, often people they and I've, I've found through that kind of work, and now also as a therapist as well, is like is people just don't get or understand how it feels internal internally for a psychosocial disability or for a mental health condition unless they've experienced it. So for burnout, for example, like when I heard burnout prior to me experiencing burnout, I just thought it was one of those kind of throwaway terms that people use in the workplace or in life in general, because it's not just a workplace issue, actually, as you just don't really feel like doing your work today or you're being a bit lazy today, you know, doing anything like that. And But then when I experienced burnout, I realized how devastating it actually is. Now I understand. If someone said to me, Simon, I'm feeling burnt out, I'm like, okay, I get this. I understand because I've been there. Same with depressions, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. And I just get it. And and so in the conversations that I now have, when I need help, I'm looking for people who get it, who understand, who've lived that have that kind of lived and learned experience particularly mm-hmm. as well. And and it's really important to find those people because once you start talking to those people. And they get it and it's just so much easier just to get it off your chest and have someone actually believe you because often when you're talking about mental illness to someone who doesn't hasn't experienced it in their lives or maybe they're not willing to admit that they've experienced it you often find it's a brick wall and they they, they just don't get it and, and it's, that makes it harder and, and it adds to that stigma and shame as well because then you feel like you're being rejected in this conversation you need to pivot and go elsewhere but often when that happens and you, you come up against someone who doesn't get it, then you just shut down again. And that could be for a week. It could be three months, six months, could be 10 years because you feel like, oh, maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just being overdramatic or something like that. But yeah, it is a very much an invisible thing. And and I think by talking about it, having shows like this, um, the work that we do just it just sheds a light onto it a spotlight onto it say hey this is an invisible thing you can't see it but it's both physical and mental as well because there's physical physical elements to your mental health conditions as well like when i experienced burnout i developed this mysterious back pain that nobody could diagnose you know i went through all the scans and then x-rays mris you name it went to specialists and they said simon you've just got back pain we don't know what it is we can operate but we don't know what we're operating on and then when i got 
better, the back pain just mysteriously disappeared. So there's certainly a physical thing. There's physical elements to it as well, but yeah, it's certainly an invisible thing. In order to intervene perhaps earlier on and to avoid a lot of what you discussed, you know, the, the ramifications of mental health issues and even substance abuse issues, suicide and, and abuse and so on. If some of our listeners are thinking about someone they know who they suspect uh, or feel needs that kind of help, what advice would you give them about approaching that person, if anything? Or do you just need to wait until somebody is ready to ask? There's two sides to this coin. It's first, you need to be ready to ask. You need to be, I guess, in a moment where you say, I need help. I need to talk about something. Because if you're not ready to do that, then it just adds another layer of complexity because you'll just defend off. Like I remember when the year or so before I went to the doctor and my wife had encouraged me to, to go to the doctor, she'd been telling me to go to the doctor for about a year earlier. And I kept deflecting. I kept saying, no, maybe you need to go to see someone. Maybe this is your issue. If you can't figure out what I, you know, if you can't accept how I am, maybe you need to go and talk to someone. I wasn't ready for that discussion at that point. I wasn't ready. I was just drinking or, or then I'd go, oh, maybe I could just fix it myself. I'll go for a run <laughs> or do so, a few more runs around the block this week. I'll eat healthy. I'll, I'll just cut back on the beers. I'll be all right. I'll fix myself. Didn't happen. Didn't fix. It was a short-term Band-Aid fix. It wasn't until a year later then I go, yes, I now need help. I, I recognize internally I need help. So there's that element, having that internal, I guess, light bulb moment where you go, okay, yep, I need help. The second aspect of the is, is how do people hold conversations for mental health? And this one's a really tricky one because if you haven't experienced mental illness before, this is very tricky and you can see someone who might be struggling. It could be your friend, it could be a work colleague, or and it usually comes up a lot in work actually because you spend a lot of time with the person sitting next to you if you're like, you know, in, in a big open planned office or, or whatever. And if you if the timing's not right, it can come across as you, you know, peering into their lives. And But also what happens if they say, yeah, I'm struggling? And then you're, if you don't know how to have a conversation, then you're now put into a, a spot where you're you potentially you know putting yourself at risk. And so there's a couple of things you can do. The first thing is is asking, "Are you okay?" And we've got there's a there's a day in Australia called "Are You Okay Day," which is dedicated to this. And and you know it's later in the year. It's a day where everybody around Australia is promoted to to ask their friends and family, "Are you doing okay?" And so what that does is prompts a conversation, sit down with them, have a coffee or go out for a walk. Are you doing okay? If they say, yeah, I'm fine. That's cool. You don't keep plugging or don't keep like poking them. It's like poking a bear. You know, they might not be okay, but they're not ready if they say yes. But then if they say, no, I'm not okay. The easiest thing for you to do is hold space. Is to is to shut up essentially, stop talking and let them talk. Say, okay, I'm here for you. I'm seeing you. Tell me what you feel like you want me to want to say. And that's it. And it's really hard for people because we go into automatic fixing mode. We want to fix everybody when they say, I need help. And so just by holding space and being comfortable in the discomfort of silence is, is, is hard, hmm. but it's truly rewarding for the person who is about to offload something. And that could be something really small. It could, or it could be something that you perceive as really small, or it could be something pretty profound. Whatever it is, if you can just hold that space, let them have that room to just breathe in deeply and, and then eventually just get it out. Because sometimes it's just the actual physical thing of getting off their chest and saying the words is, is a bit of a barrier. 
you can do an immense favor for that person, but you also have to be ready for what's going to come out because it might be something that might trigger you. And so if you get to that point, it's also about recognizing yourself. I need to get out of this conversation as well. And so there's a couple of ways you can do that. One is you can go, Hey, I'm hearing you. I'm, I'm seeing you, but this isn't a conversation I can be a part of, but I still want to help. How can I help? And then that gives the other person who's coming out with all these mental health issues is as a means to say, okay, well, maybe you can't help me, but can you call someone, this person or offer them, offer to take them to their GP or call their GP's office and say, let's talk to your doctor. Let's, you know, book you in and maybe take them to the doctor if, if, if you're, if you're able to, these kind of small things, they can deflect the situation to a professional or to someone who is ready to have that conversation and protect you as well. The other thing is if you're in the conversation is try not to fix it or even ask them, the person who, who's divulging is how do the, how have they fixed it in the past? How have they you know gotten better in the past? Who have they spoken to? Because that also empowers them to think back to their, to their previous times because this is probably not the first time and draw from their resilience. Because when we're experiencing mental illness, we don't feel like we're resilient. We don't feel like we're strong. But in fact, we've probably done this a few times. Maybe it's we've called a certain person or maybe we've gone and done a certain activity that's helped calm us or helped help got over this period. And so by asking those types of questions, it prompts a person to start thinking and going, okay, and start problem solving for themselves because then they're fixing themselves as opposed to us applying fixes to them but it is a very tricky thing and it's something that you ne- people need to recognize in themselves their own strengths and their own weaknesses but you won't really know it until you're in the conversation and and we've talked about suicide suicide is quite a tricky conversation when someone says i feel like i'm going to kill myself or i want to do that there is training i know in australia and I've, I've done it recently that is for every everyday people it's not necessarily for professionals on how to recognize the signs but then also some of the things that you can to- use, like the tools you can use to navigate through those conversations as well. Like, And in particular, the types of wording to use to reassure the person, but also to try and guide them towards a, a support that they can tap into, whether it's a hospital, the GP, a psychologist, counsellor, social worker, or just a, a protected person, like their partner, family member. Um, so there is training available if people are, are listening to this, particularly in Australia, given I'm Australian, um, and I'm sure there's probably over in the US and, and UK, wherever this, wherever the podcast goes, that everyday people can access. And they're usually relatively cheap as well to talk about you know, things like suicide. Here in the US, when you have an emergency, you dial 911 and that takes you directly to the police and they immediately know where you are and where you're calling from. There is now a separate number, 988, that is specifically for suicide prevention. Mm. Yeah. And that's just come online in the last year or so. So that here in the US, that's, that's an option for people. But I really want to emphasize the idea that if you're going to approach someone who you think may be having an issue, you do need to be prepared for how they're going to react. And as you point out, it could be as simple as they say they're fine, in which case you let them go, or they may just need you to listen to them. But you also should have some idea of how to direct them or help them if they do actually open up and indicate they need it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up hotlines because they're an invaluable resource if you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to say. Or even if you do know what to say, but the other person doesn't really feel comfortable talking to you, the easiest thing you can do is call one of those hotlines, whether it's a suicide or we've got a few mental health ones as well in Australia. 
and just sit with them with the phone. Dial the number and say, do you just want me to sit here and, and you talk to this person who's trained on the other end of that phone is trained mm -hmm. to have these very specific conversations. So even if you sometimes, because sometimes we go into like that kind of like the deer in headlights moment as well. Like we might have all the training and lived experience even, and we get to that point and we just freeze. We don't know what to say or what to do. Maybe it's, it's the particular issue that's triggered us. So sitting there with a hotline on the phone, everyone's got a mobile phone these days, is is really useful. And I've done that a few times to with people where, particularly in my earlier when I was studying and I wasn't sure what to do and, and what to say, hadn't had the training yet, I'd sat on the phone with somebody on a hotline and they spoke to the trained person, but I was giving them comfort just by being there in the same room with them because I felt like... I was more of a comfort as well for the, having someone to share that moment so they didn't feel like they were doing it alone. And I found that really useful. And everyone can do that as, as long as, I guess, you're you're comfortable being in that conversation as well because they are triggering to to people trying to help. And, and people have their best intentions to help sometimes, but sometimes they put themselves in danger as well. So it's just stuff to be, to, to be mindful of. That's a, a good place to wrap up, I think. Things to be mindful of from the developer of the mindful men approach to uh, to mental health. I don't know if anyone from Australia will listen from my end of things. Um, I do get people from all over the world. If people wanted to learn more about you, Simon, and, and what you do, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, the best way is just to go to my website. So it's my therapy website, but it's also got links to my social media as well. Um, so it's www.mindful-men.com.au. Um, you'll see all the all of my services there and, and my social media. Um, but before we go, Leonard, I'd like to thank you for A, holding a space here for mental health discussions um, today. But I know we were trying to hook this up, I think it was October, November last year, and I was going through a mental health situation at that point. I was really struggling, burnt out, depressed, trying to get my business up and running and I had to cancel and I had to say and I said I, I'm, I'm sorry I have to cancel I'm going through a mental health situation at the moment and you didn't one of the amazing things is not only did you give me the space and say yeah that's cool that no worries but then you came back around like literally this week and you came back around and so you circled back around you gave me the space you circled back around and said hey you're still interested in doing this and I was always interested in doing this. And, and so many times in the mental health space, like we we might touch point with somebody and, and talk to them about something, but then leave them and never go back to them and, and circle back around. So I'm really thankful that you did that because I was excited when you got back here. You were still interested in me having being on the show, but also you gave me that space to just heal when I needed it. And I really am thankful for that and, and was excited when I saw your name pop up in my emails this week. I'm very glad and you're welcome. I'm thrilled that I came back around to you because I think this has just been an incredibly illuminating and important conversation. And thank you for, for the time and for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you as always to Jim Cirillo at jimmyumgroup.com for our original music and to Rachel Greenberger for our original art. Please send questions to WTSWTGT at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at hashtag WTSWTGT. Until next time, always be positive.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.